Guess who's back? <laughs> your worst nightmare or your fantasy. Um, Vladimir Kramnik has a new blog post. <laughs> even worse, even better. Should we acknowledge that we haven't recorded in like nine months? I feel no obligation to explain ourselves. What's the famous quote? Never complain, never explain. But I do a lot of both of those things. Aren't you Jewish? How about you explain and I'll complain? We've been away because we were busy and we have a life. And most of the people who asked when we were coming back have never given the pod money. (laughs) You guys should give us more money. That's my complaint. I think I complained accidentally. (laughs) A classic Jewish foil. We've been busy, but we haven't forgotten that we do this podcast. I am glad to be back. I missed you so much. I can't believe that we didn't get to talk in this interim between recording. I know. Putting in the contract that we weren't allowed to talk outside of the podcast is literally the only reason we're doing a season three. And for that, I am grateful. Like a really weird NDA. I just, I feel like we should, feel like we should be allowed to communicate, but here we are. How are you, JJ? Have you been? Pretty good. I spent the year trying to travel to more chess tournaments and then lost all of the rating I had gained the last one I played. It's relatable content though. You also haven't gained any rating this year. Yeah, I haven't played a classical chess game even online since we last recorded. So Also in the NDA. <laughs> I am only allowed to try to advance my chess play live for you people. Why did Chessable put that in our contract and why did we <laughs> uh, I'm suffering. There's my Jewish complaint. Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> I got a lot of problems with you people. Happy Festivus, depending on when this is released. And boy, is this going to be a real Festivus. We wanted to kick off the season. Essentially, I mean, really on theme here is like an act of atonement. We haven't shown up for you guys recently. So basically, we wanted to make up for the last full year of no chess feels, no podcast at all, uh, by trying to solve all of your problems at once. And boy, have we. We have really been thinking about this deeply for a long time. Certainly not reading all of the questions you guys submitted to our Ask Us Anything live during this recording. And we are really ready to change lives. So we did solicit on our Twitter at ChessFeelsPod, for those of you who don't follow us, that if you have any questions, preferably not about chess, ask us and we'll answer them. So you asked and now we answer. Yeah. I mean, how lucky are these people? You literally have a professional chess coach and a clinical psychologist at your disposal. This is what we're here for. We're ready to make a difference today. We are ready to be disposed. (laughs) All right, let's just dive in. Who do we have? So first up, we have Max. Max writes, occasionally, I blunder material or hang a tactic. Often, this is because I have little time or am trying to play quickly but not always. Most elements of chess can be studied or otherwise practiced, and while I do spend time on puzzles, it doesn't seem to reduce my blundering rate. How would you advise that I practice not blundering? Cheers, Max. So this is a psychology question. <laughs> I was just saying, we're starting off with a serious one. Okay, JJ, how would you start to answer this? Maybe we can circle back to this one. I'm, I'm only a little less interested in answering this because he takes lessons from me, and we've spent several before and after this question answering it. So I don't know what he wants from me. I've told him my answers to this before he wrote this. So it's kind of like, oh. <laughs> that's so 
funny. Okay, great. Let's roast Max live for our audience of 50,000 people. That's right. We've hit a few milestones, guys. What have you told Max that he has simply ignored or not absorbed? Well, like Max, I was also not listening, so I don't remember. But my best guess is, well, first, I would have made one of my favorite jokes, which really pisses off a lot of children, which is, do you know how to make fewer blunders in time trouble? Don't get in time trouble. Exactly. (laughs) I know he says that this is not always in time trouble or because he's trying to play fast. But the best way to not make mistakes under time pressure or threat of time pressure is to not feel under threat of time pressure and not to get into time pressure. So I'm more interested in looking at the points in the game where there were five equally decent moves or there were a lot of flexible moves and Max instead spent upwards of five minutes on that turn without really clocking that this was not a critical moment or how much flexibility there was there. And I'm more interested in reducing those moments than I am in magically figuring out how to reduce blundering and more pressure-filled moments when we have to remember that we've all seen grandmasters make gigantic blunders in time trouble or in other high-stress moments. Great point. So it seems like getting that countdown to zero or even just trying to get it down just doesn't seem as realistic. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great point, JJ. And I feel like another thing that I might tuck in is not only thinking about not getting into the time pressure, but we've also talked on this pod about not getting into a position that warrants a lot of critical thinking and to the high propensity to blunder something really sharp that will require more of that time. Like, can you also learn how to navigate towards positions where you are less likely to blunder as well? Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I would say is don't let yourself fall prey to the narrative you're constructing in your head. I think a lot of people, including me, blunder more often in positions that they've declared in their head to be dry or positional or devoid of tactics. There only needs to be one, right? So there might not be 50 things to calculate every turn, but I can definitely think of the last time I played against a Berlin in a tournament and I missed the only tactic on the board. And it was extremely Mm. because with very few tactical motifs to look for, let alone variations, Mm. it was very easy to just fall out of the practice of doing whatever blunder checks. And so I missed something very straightforward that I probably wouldn't have missed in a Sicilian when I was looking for it. Uh, Similarly, in addition to narratives like this is a boring game, you want to think about how even if the narrative is I'm on the offense and they're on the defense, sometimes a dynamic transformation or tactic can be the best defensive resource. So Mm. looking for their resources, even though they're, quote, defending and catching yourself when you're changing your decision-making process and blunder check process based off of these narratives. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that. It's like a nice nuance. I totally agree. What does this say about Max as a person morally? I assume that's what psychologists Yeah, Moral quandary, personality evaluation. How would you analyze Max's propensity to blunder in his dreams? Oedipus complex. Totally. Come on, Max, get it together. Get your head (laughs) out of that gutter. Start blunder checking. Start using your cognition for something useful over here, my guy. All right. I have a really good one. No joke, Chris Callahan, dear, dear friend of the pod, writes, my special lady asked me to teach her chess, which is awkward because I don't want to, which I've told her. I get more than my fill of chess, and I don't want it invading even more of my time. At the same time, I'm sort of rejecting an activity that we could do together. Confused face. Wow. That is a conundrum. It's the new trolley problem. (laughs) There's no trolley 
but the one non-chess playing partner actually wants to learn and you're trying to get hit by a train. <laughs> what to do? Actually, this is a thing that I wonder. How common is this? I think a lot of people who play chess do have partners who don't play chess. Mm-hmm. But the thing that feels truly difficult to wrap my head around, someone wants to learn. But we've all been in a scenario, maybe we have a friend or there's a kid around, someone who's pretty bad at chess. So they think, oh, you like chess. Show me how to play chess. That will also be fun for us. And then it is soul crushing. Your new best friend in podcast. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, that's actually really cool. Okay, you did like that. To go back to what you were saying. I know my first reaction when I read my special lady asked me to quote, teach her chess. My first thought was, no, she didn't. Or she doesn't want that. Or she's wrong. <laughs> she's mistaken. Yeah, I mean, okay. So let's let's really think about this one. What do you do? You got two things to protect here. You have a relationship that you presumably care about. He's described it as special. And you have your own happiness and peace of mind. Okay, I figured it out. Yeah. I got the light bulb. It's I'm curious if your answer is my answer. Okay. My answer is you just teach her chess. You do it as pedantically as you want to. You don't try to pander. You give her the dry foundations, the basics. She's going to hate it. This problem resolves itself. That was literally my answer. Wait, really? <laughs> well, my answer was do a bad job, but but I like that yours is a bit more diplomatic, which is don't go out of your way to do a bad job, but do eff- effectively a bad job. Not like malicious incompetence, but I'm thinking like the solution to making someone who thinks they want to learn how to play chess, let them play chess. What makes chess more unappealing to the average person than having to play chess? Start with endgame theory. I was going to say, like, what are some of the worst ways I've seen chess taught? They range from starting with the end games and until she can do opposition pawn promotion stuff, like she doesn't even learn how the pieces are. Yeah, I like that. That feels that feels really barbaric. And then we have to work on opening theory. Actually, this is such a great opportunity for Chris. This could be so hilarious. You have the opportunity to convince someone that this is the pedagogical best way to learn chess and then do the most ridiculous things you can possibly think of. Like, What would be the most hilarious way to try to convince an absolute novice beginner? No, this is normal. This is how you're supposed to learn. We'll pause and be right back to this episode. But first, a plug for Lifetime Repertoires on Chessable, perfect for beginners <laughs> and players of all levels. Oh my God, please start with the most ridiculous LTR. Geary, What's the most ridiculous one? Uh, yeah, pro- I, I mean, prob- probably the Geary Night Earth, just because, and it's not even Geary's fault, it's the Night Earth's fault, but memorizing every variation of Geary's Night Earth, of course, before you play a game. If you do not use this opportunity to have a brand new beginner at chess, Start with the Nidor lifetime repertoire. You have failed the entire community as a whole. Also, I think that a lot of adult improvers have talked about the sorts of checklists and analytics they use. And I think it's really important to apply that to a total beginner learning chess. So for instance, we should be tracking her accuracy score on every game she plays and measuring it over time. And I think she'll really appreciate seeing the the, the growth in these numbers that she totally understands in terms of number of blunders per game. And we could also get some live negative feedback for her. It doesn't have to be a blunder. Anytime there is a mistake, a missed win, you need to make a loud buzzer noise in her face. The only way to really learn how to play chess is to get some over-the-board experience. And since Chris lives in Charlotte, which has a thriving scholastic scene, we can put her in some tournaments where she'd be playing mostly five-year-olds who are probably more experienced than she is. And she can spend her days playing them and losing to them and getting reinfected with COVID from them. 
Tough love, lady friends. Darius writes, Dear Julia and JJ, I recently lost 11 Blitz games in a row, and then I immediately won 12 in a row, and I feel immense shame. What am I working through or chasing? Will my dreams be impacted by this? How do I get help? Yours truly, Bipolar Blitzer. I mean, I'll tell Darius the same thing I tell all of my therapy patients. Sometimes shame is deserved. (laughs) It's at least useful. (laughs) <laughs> JJ's cracking up because literally I would never ever tell anybody. But for you, Darius, maybe actually shame for the first time in the course of all of human history. Maybe you should sit with that a little bit. That's good advice. I think as somebody who doesn't really know shame in general, and certainly not shame as it relates to their blitz games, I'm trying to get myself into the mindset of somebody having this reaction. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. maybe it's not just the streak or like the losing streak, but also the streakiness of realizing, wait, I'm a very emotional player, or I'm not able to shake off the last one. And I would love to be able to harness any abilities that come out when I'm on a hot streak and just harness them in general. And I would love to not continually Mm. play poorly when I start losing. And I'm frustrated about that. Like that could be something I don't know if like Julia said, shame is almost certainly useful as it is everywhere. (laughs) In addition to the shame, maybe there is a useful sort of frustration. Oh, like, wow, wouldn't it be cool if I won 50% of my games in an alternating way, like most people do instead of in sets of 10? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I think that's a good point, JJ. I also want to bring in a piece of currently relevant discourse to this. What if we are pathologizing something that is not pathology, these wild swings. What if this is just statistical chance? What is the likelihood that randomly someone would win or lose more than 10 games of blitz in a row? Are we overanalyzing? Calling in right now from the Kremlin, Vladimir Kremlin. (laughs) Darius, you're winning 12 blitz games in a row. Are you cheating? We're not accusing Darius of cheating. We're just saying that logically one would have to infer. Yeah. Okay. Chess.com, this guy over here. Will his dreams be impacted by this? Well, it took us a few weeks to get to these questions. So you tell us, have your dreams been impacted by this? Yeah, Darius, right back in. If you're stressed enough, they sure will be. And as always, Oedipus Complex. Oh, I'll take another one because you'll have a good answer to it. Let's do it. The Strong Chess, aka Strong Todd, (laughs) asks himself... How much do I have to bench press to like myself? Uh, if you have to ask, you can't afford it. I mean, I would assume like somewhere between half and a quarter of what he currently benches. <laughs> I've actually never bench pressed anything. You've never pressed a bench? I've never pressed a bench. And I do like myself somehow. I've been depressed on a bench. <laughs> Wait, that's so good. Which bench? You you don't it's at another school. <laughs> you don't know her. I actually go to the gym all the time at another school. You guys can write in who do you think is more ripped, me or JJ? Who do you think would win in an arm wrestle? You or me? Oh, that's a good question. Do I have to use my own arms? <laughs> yeah, you do, but just one. I think you only use one of those. Okay. It's not arms wrestle, you're right. The way JJ's avoiding. <laughs> The question makes me feel like I have a shot. JJ's the favorite, but Julia has a chance. (laughs) Do you think Ding would have won the tiebreak against Nepo if it was arm wrestling? You know, it's so easy to say yes, because people are thinking purely in terms of size and quantity of muscle. But do you know what Ding brings to the table? 
He doesn't come to the table. <laughs> he's just sitting in the back. Not he's up. <laughs> he's, talk about absence since around April. People are giving us shit. What about Dingley Ren? Yeah, we were literally only doing that. Um, in solidarity with the people's champion. In solidarity with our world champion. Because we are only nationally recognized, according to the Association of American Chess Journalists, as podcast of the year. We're not world champions. We're only national champions. Increase our paycheck. If you could beat Magnus Carlsen at any game except for chess, what would it be? Whoa. Well, he plays poker. I'm going to pick poker so I could win some money and more clout. We always want that sweet, sweet clout. I was thinking poker, but playing poker as I currently do, which is with basically no theory or understanding and just enough to misapply and misuse terms. And I want to like win hand after hand against him doing that because he would be so mad and I would be so rich. (laughs) Would we be so rich though? I don't know how poker works. Like, do you get rich off one hand if you beat him one time? Well, I want like hand after hand. I want heads up of me making the wrong decision every time. Mm. And like the flop comes out 772. Just destroy Magnus Carlsen's entire psyche. Playing poorly. I think that's my real answer to the question is it has to be a game that he plays well and I play poorly and I play poorly and wipe the floor with him. Yeah, I think poker is a good one then. Doesn't Magnus Carlsen also play soccer? Did I make that up? He plays soccer, and I know he was briefly like the world number one ranked fantasy soccer player. Oh, then that's it. That's my answer because you can make real money off of that. Yeah. I'm like poker. (laughs) Okay. Camilla wrote to us How does one curb their addiction to buying chess books, especially when one isn't ready to admit that it's a problem? This is actually the same thing I do tell my patients. I'm kind of worried about your job in the addiction clinic right now. No, but that's, I'm serious about that. I mean, a lot of what I'm doing with MI is helping them reach insight if it is a problem. But if someone comes to me and describes how much they're drinking, we don't diagnose based on frequency. So to apply this to Camilla's question, it's not about the frequency of the chess book. It's about distress and impairment. So if you're not unhappy and your life is not in shambles, you don't need to be sitting in the office with me. But by the time you're here, there is definitely distress and or impairment. So we're able to get there with a little bit of work. But I think that's true. It's true. To quote the late and great JJ Lang, I'm not your parole officer. <laughs> not yet. Same with chess books. You can buy as many as you want. If you get a sense of pleasure in having them and there's no problem, then there's no problem. But the fact that she's saying, I can't admit that there's a problem, there's a problem. Unless that's why she can't admit there's a problem. Yeah, what if she can't admit that there's a problem because it's not a problem? What if it is making her better at chess? It really makes you think. It's so funny because I have a rant here that is actually (laughs) very similar to what Julia was saying, which is that I think there's a lot of social pressure to feel bad about spending money on things or to Mm -hmm. feel like if you are going to spend money on things, you have to use them or use them, quote unquote, the right way. And there's a sense in which it's definitely practical, especially, you know, if money is tight and instead of buying food this month, you bought more chess books and you're not even reading them, that might be a problem. Or even if you are reading them and you bought them instead of food, that might be a problem. But if there's other fun things you could have spent money on, but like Julia is saying, if having the chess book, if knowing that you're supporting the author, if knowing that you could read it, 
if knowing that it could be there for you is more entertaining to you than like some random concert or something, I don't see why that's a worse use of $25. And there is an assumption that if you're not going to read the book, you should have just spent the money on something else. Or if you have books you haven't read, you should just read those and not buy the new ones. And I just think that's kind of bullshit. I also think the idea that you have to read the book cover to cover is kind of bullshit. It's not a novel. And if you get inspired by dipping in and out of things or opening a few pages and it makes you more excited about your chess or more excited about the possibility of coming back to it. I think that's all great. So I definitely think it doesn't have to be a problem. Maybe the question here is just how do I get myself to read the chess books that I do want to read and can't work up the motivation to read? That's exactly what I was going to say. That's the implicit quote unquote problem. And it's mm-hmm. an interesting sidestep. It's sort of creating this direction of causality in which the buying new chess books is the reason you're not reading the old chess books. And yeah. I would actually really exactly. kind of hold that up and let us push against that a little bit. Mm-hmm. If you could confidently, 100% for sure, stop buying chess books in the future, do you think that that would solve the sort of invisible underlined problem here of reading the old chess books? And I can imagine for a lot of people, the answer is probably not quite. To put it even more flippantly, do you really think these books you're not reading are the reason you're not reading those other books? (laughs) Exactly. They're all just friends on the shelf. They need company. I I really would just take the pressure off here, off yourself. And if you're trying to find a way to get through the books that you have because you feel like they would be useful, there's strategies for that. I don't know what they are. I've never done that, but maybe you can speak to it, JJ. (laughs) No, it's really hard. The one thing that I always think about from especially academic philosophy is that a lot of books started out as paper ideas or conference talk ideas. And for whatever reason, enough of the ideas were similar enough that they made sense in book form, or a book would look like a good line on the CV, or it got picked up by a prestigious publisher or something. And then it became a book, not so much because the author had one coherent, fluid book length idea that had to be read cover to cover to understand but because it was a more practical way to get some of the content out there than writing a series of articles. And that doesn't mean you as a reader owe the author reading the book cover to cover. Yeah. And I think that's true of at least some chess books. And it's not even necessarily a bad thing. It just means that if I read a few minutes a day of a book, or if I get through a page of a chess book a day, that might be months before you finish the book, but it also might still mean you're finishing that chapter in a week or two. And then you read a whole chapter. And if you have as many books as you claim to, If you didn't like the chapter or didn't really love it, try that few few minutes a day, a few pages a day of the next book. And maybe you'll eventually find something that you actually want to read and are motivated in. And instead of being motivated by this, I should because I'm spending money on it, you're motivated by finding it interesting. Do you ever think, though, that even if people don't find it interesting, there actually is some real utility in sort of pushing through that boredom? Or finding ways Mm -hmm. to sort of increase the concentration so that someone really could use the book as the medium and read through it. So for example, for beginners, I think we talk a lot about reassess your chess, Mm -hmm. even if it doesn't feel like the most entertaining, like someone might want to just play Blitz on their phone or watch Mm -hmm. Twitch, what have you. Is there a usefulness there in using the book over another tool? I think definitely, although I am a big believer with there being so many chess books out there that we should be able to find For most parts of the game, at least, we should be able to find a book that really doesn't feel like a chore. 
maybe the exception is if you hate doing tactics, but you know, you have to get better at tactics. You know, we might not find a tactics book that doesn't feel like a chore ditto end games. Yeah. But when, especially when I think of the more general strategic ones, like if you really are not enjoying how this is going to be a future topic, because I hate this book, Yasser Sarawan's winning chess strategies. If you're not enjoying the complete lack of pedagogical usefulness of all of these nice ideas Fisher had once, then maybe you can just read something else and that's okay. Yeah. Like why try to apply yourself to this thing that's going to be so hard to absorb? Yeah. Why? Why bother? Exactly. And I think my brain goes there when I think about reading chess books, because if by reading chess books, we mean learning how to play end games. Like, sorry, you just need to actually do that. And whether it's a book yeah. or another source, you need to do that. But when I think of reading chess books, it's more like, well, someone said I should read so-and-so's game collection, but I'm finding it hard to get through. I'm like, oh, okay. Right. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I like what you said. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. You can flip through and you can pick out the pieces that do feel useful and helpful and not feel like you have to absorb it in this front to back way. I, I do like that. I do like thinking about it like that. Oh, and the last thing on there is uh, there's also a lot of different strategies for reading books and especially for reading chess books, especially if it's something that's a little bit more wordy and not exercise based, taking some like undergrad textbook strategies where you're writing little one sentence summaries on each page. It's, it might feel really tedious to figure out what lessons you're supposed to draw from this entire game analysis. But if you can just write down an idea that was really profound to you the moment you read it, and then you have a little notebook that has one or two insights from every day that you read, that's incredible and that's motivating and that can be cool. I know some people, as they read books, enjoy like taking pictures of a page they're reading or a position they found in Sightfall. And there's something that can be useful about sharing that or having to put into your own words how you thought about it or inviting others to do that, that can make it feel a little bit more interactive. Even reading books with a friend could be a fun way. Like that's how I got through Vukovic, The Art of Attack, was I read it with a couple other people, one chapter at a time who are on my skill level. We took turns preparing the exercises that were in the chapter and everyone else was looking at it from the first time and the person who prepared it would talk us through it. And what was really useful there is that's a book with incredibly deep and instructive positions and not always the clearest writing and explanation of what's going on. So having four people talking through and puzzling through and working out what did or didn't work or how we got there was way more engaging and insightful than just failing exercise after exercise and not being exactly sure what I was supposed to be doing. I feel like that's something that people do not talk about enough. If we're going to talk about chess books. People are going to talk about, oh, here's my top 10 favorites. Here are the best ones you can use. I, I definitely don't hear people talking about it through this lens, JJ. Like, What are the most effective ways to read the book and absorb and to stay engaged? That's not something that people necessarily have a lot of exposure to, but might find really effective. And then you take the book and then you take a pair of scissors and you start <laughs> cutting out parts of the book. You take but, pictures of them. But I defend that because even if that strategy is not the most effective, I actually think there's something to that. Like if that keeps somebody oh, engaged, yeah. Oh, yeah. if that makes them keep going, if that makes them revisit it, I don't know. I'm slow to knock it. It's better than what I'm doing for my chest study. That's for sure. Yeah. And I mean, especially if that makes it more motivating for you, go for it. If you're finding it even harder to open your chess book because you feel like you quote unquote should be doing all mm. of these things or any of these things, mm -hmm. then knock it off. But if the thought of, well, why would I read this book? I'm going to forget it 
is replaced with, hey, if I make index cards out of what I read, I'm excited because I'll actually be able to go back and revisit it. Great, go for it. Yeah, even if you don't revisit it, there's something about the fact that that even keeps you going. It could have some usefulness. I kind of like it. If, if it excites you, go for it. If it just feels like yet another thing you should be doing, like not buying a new book until you finish the old ones, break that. Just get rid of that thought. We don't do shoulds. Okay. This is probably one that I can answer, but I'd love to hear your feedback. Great. John Hanna asks, why do I lose playing the Benoni as black and lose to the Benoni as white? Yeah. The two genders. <laughs> I'm loses as the Bononi. It is a good question, though. There's something on the surface where it seems very contradictory. And you and I have talked about this, JJ. Mm-hmm. But I think you're actually really good at beating the Bononi as white. Do you agree? Better than I am at winning with it as black. Here's how I would explain it. This is the way that I would answer it. And then we'll hear from the real expert how close I get. The way that I would explain why you lose the Bononi as black, but then you also lose against the Bononi as white, is because you don't understand the Bononi. Mm-hmm. and you suck at the Benoni. Mm-hmm. I think it's actually consistent. Which is probably a really good skill to have as a chess player. <laughs> I know. It means like you don't understand something that's stupid. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I agree with that and maybe would generalize a little bit and say maybe I'd be curious to hear what other openings he likes and doesn't like playing because my first thought is, oh, okay, you are not comfortable in dynamic, concrete, tactical positions or some combination of those. And whether you're the side who has the objective advantage and space advantage is white, but still has to anticipate your opponent's resources and get a well-timed break in the center in order to win, or you're playing it as black and you still have to figure out how to get a well-timed B5 or some shit and anticipate when E5 is wrong. Like, it is still the same skill from either side. You know, it's not like one of those openings, maybe like a Maroxy Bind, where white's right. job is much more positional and black's right. job is much more dynamic tactical, where here you are still having to exercise some of the same skills from both sides. And so maybe those are some weak points in your game. Yeah, it seems kind of obvious, actually. If I can just also bring in like a little bit of a psychological perspective, a solution to this and like to avoid this problem is stop doing that. Don't play the Benoni. Yeah. So we played it, John Hanna and I played a blitz game at Alto when I was there. I'm not certain he mm. knows that was me, but he played the French as black, but that's a whole other problem. That one we do pathologize. But he played D4 as white. And I think he played the like F4 lines against the Benoni. And I remember he got mated as white, which shouldn't happen. <laughs> but may- maybe yeah, maybe, maybe even on opening choice, maybe there's something about, well, I know that this F4 shit is supposed to be some of the critical ways to refute this dubious opening. And maybe instead looking for just some of those like early night F3 and 8B2 lines that are mm-hmm. very solid, very logical, but not trying to follow the computer's top line recommendations, but instead the sorts of plans that could help with maybe could help more than just trying to play what are quote unquote the best lines. I think that's actually very sound advice. Thank you. You're welcome. I had six beers over the course of that blitz session. And <laughs> he was the first game I played. So I remember it very well. Man, John Hannah, getting your money's worth today. You are functioning as designed. Don't play the Benoni. Become an E4 player. <laughs> you could have answered this way more concisely. Why do I lose playing the Benoni as black and lose to the Benoni as white? Like, 
Minoni fucking sucks. That should be your know. new thing when people ask why you play E4, you should say, because I don't want to face the Benoni. What an <laughs> amazing answer. That is so funny. <laughs> Honestly, it brought me to my knees. Couldn't do it anymore. Everyone plays it. They know the theory so well. There was no good lines as white. <laughs> but then you have to follow it up, JJ, with D4. It's just too positional for me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like that, that Benoni gets me every time. So I learned the English. And that's just one more example of colonization for you. If we are in need of an extended break from chess, how long should the break be? Two weeks? A month? Longer? What if we just give a really prescriptive answer? Like, what do they expect us to say? Yeah, 17 days. Take the largest losing streak you've had over the past 24 days and multiply that number of games by two days and subtract one day for every hour time zone east of London you are, and that's how long your break should be. Next. Clark writes, how to frame thinking about your relationship with chess, whether it's accepting you'll never be as good as that dream or that you spend so much time and energy on a board game. I like really do not understand what the question is. Maybe what Clark meant was, how do you frame thinking about your relationship with chess, whether it's accepting you'll never be as good as that dream or that you spend so much time and energy on a board game. I do not mm-hmm. understand the question. Okay. Yeah. I I think I get it. I think I get it. Um, You're somebody who spends a lot of time and energy and resources on chess. People, including maybe yourself, but maybe other people in your life, ask why you choose to prioritize that amount of time, energy, and resources on chess. The answer that you want to give might be something like, because I'm really good or I can get really good. Or getting good at chess is the sort of thing that would bring me a lot of value. And I can explain why that brings me value in a way that you, the non-chess player, can understand. And the more I have to sit with that, the more I realize I'm just not going to be as good as I wish I could be, no matter how hard I work. And I'm not going to be able to articulate to you or maybe even myself why I get so much value from this, no matter how much I want to. So how should I think about my relationship with chess? Yeah. Okay. That's beautiful. That's a nice way to frame it. What do you think, JJ? I'm sure you have felt this. I'm sure you know lots of people who have felt this. Yeah. I mean, I think to kind of go back to the break question, which we globally dismissed, I think the answer is you should take a break from working hard on chess when it's not making you happy. And when you're starting to have the time and energy for chess and you're starting to really crave that, you should go back to it. And when it's making you happy, you should pursue it. And that might mean like it did for me that your break from chess or serious chess at least was years long. And that's not because mm. that's like a sort of prescriptive, you need at least a few years of a reset or something. It's just mm-hmm. that chess was probably the thing I worked the hardest on in my life <laughs> up to like mm-hmm. high school when I was playing competitively. Mm-hmm. Trying to improve at chess was much harder than lots of the other things that I was doing or wanted to do. And there were lots of other opportunities I was starting to find that were new and exciting to me. And it made sense to pursue those. By the time I was miserable in a grad program and trying to make progress on a dissertation, none of those things felt as easy or as exciting or as new or as fresh as trying to get good at chess. And it made me much happier to work on my chess than it did to do a lot of other things that five years prior made me much happier than working on my chess did. And... Mm -hmm. The reason I bring that up now is to say the way I think about my relationship to chess is even if it makes me miserable a lot of the time, I feel a sort of happiness and fulfillment getting to think about it and work on it 
and try to grow with it that I wasn't finding in the other things I was doing. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that in, JJ, because that was the only thing I was going to add is just to point out that happiness is a tricky word. Mm-hmm. And there is a way in which we might think happiness feels like instantaneous reward, almost that dopamine feeling. There's lots of things that we sort of equate with happiness. And really what I hear you talking about, JJ, is something a lot more profound or or a lot more significant. I mean, happiness can encompass a lot of things. There's a lot of ways that chess can fit in in a way which makes you feel quote unquote happy. That doesn't necessarily feel the word that I'm looking for. Fulfilling. Well, no, no, no. I was almost going to say the exact opposite. There's a way in which something can feel fulfilling, even if it doesn't feel rewarding moment to moment, or if it doesn't feel totally engaging. There's a way in which something might be really important to us, but still feels hard or still feels stressful. We might still feel miserable in tiny moments inside of it. But for that period of time for you, JJ, where you stepped aside, I think that you're kind of speaking to that. Like There was a period of time in my life where it wasn't bringing any of those things. It wasn't the priority. It wasn't the most important. There's a way in which I hear you inviting the writer of the question to really look internally and say, what do you love? What do you cherish about the game? What does it bring you? How does it fit in? Why do you even care about this in the first place? Mm -hmm. And let the answers to those questions inform you how you want that relationship to work. It's a beautiful answer because what I was going to say, which again, might have been kind of glib, Mm -hmm. is when you're asking, how should I shape or conceptualize my relationship to chess? I don't know. Don't. Yeah. You you don't need a shorthand. You don't need a thing to call it. You don't need a, a way of deciding what the relationship should be in this sort of intellectual pursuit. You can explore chess in this experiential way and let it fulfill you in the ways that it does mm-hmm. and fill your time differently in the ways that it doesn't. I think that we create all this meaning around it that actually really takes away from what our relationship to chess can be. Yes, I think yes. it has a detrimental impact. Yeah. To use some language that shows up elsewhere, including in other conversations we've had, is the more we can be clear that our relationship to chess can be framed in process-oriented terms rather than results-oriented yeah. terms. Yeah, oh, I love that. Because when I think about my relationship to chess being more of, I'm trying to hit these benchmarks or get to this level or get some sort of social capital or something out of my chess skill, I've picked a terrible thing to try to improve at as an adult and a terrible thing Mm. to try and get those results out of it. But when Mm -hmm. I think about how deeply rewarding and enriching and fulfilling I find being immersed in the process of trying to understand chess, the way that a lot of people feel about everything from literature to making music to, I want like a funny one here. Yeah, Uh, yeah, wait. Posting about being vegan. <laughs> no, we don't want to alienate our vegan listeners. Well, they'll tell us. Not Gopal. Oh, thank God I found an excuse to talk about Gopal. I, okay. I can't imagine recording an episode of this show without that. I love you, Gopal. I know, because he listens to every episode. <laughs> I know, what a waste. Gopal, stop ignoring me. But yeah, so maybe building off of Julia saying, you know, just don't conceptualize your relationship to chess as well. It's something that the act of doing it and being sucked into it and playing with it and engaging with it, I find fulfilling. And sometimes, I don't know, I think of one of my friends in undergrad who really loved biking and Mm -hmm. also really loved knitting. And at one point was lamenting how she hates that all of her hobbies just take so long to do, (laughs) or like it takes so, Mm -hmm. like it takes so much time to get any degree of satisfaction out of doing them. And, Mm -hmm. and to say, yeah, you know, if I could play a blitz game a day or something, 
and get all the fulfillment out of chess that I do out of a classical, then I would probably rethink my relationship to chess or my priorities on chess or my time in chess. But mm -hmm. as it is to get the thing out of chess that I want out of the process of playing chess, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy. And because I really enjoy doing that, that's why it's my relationship to chess is what it is. Right. Yes, exactly. And I think that's the thing that I'm hitting on because inside of this question, there's this subtext of like, this is creating distress for me. The fact that I don't know what to call it or that I'm putting in a lot of time and I'm not getting a rating or there's these pieces of it that I feel like should be part of that relationship or the conceptualization. Like I only should be spending this much time if I am this good at it or I should be relating to it in this way. And so it, that in and of itself is what is creating the problem. Exactly. And that might be an internal thing. That might be something that you're hearing from the people in your life. That might be something that you're projecting onto the people in your life, whether or not they think it. And it could be worth having those conversations of, hey, I really want to do this and prioritize this and whatnot, even when I'm not improving, or even if it's not going to have certain results. And you might find that you're now in conflict with somebody, or you might find that they stare at you blankly and are like, okay, I don't care what your rating is. What was it again? Right, right. That's kind of what I was thinking. I can totally imagine that scenario, but I can also imagine for so many people how much this is really self-internalized yes. and how much of that pressure is coming. It's not like that pressure is made up. Like, Of course, we're impacted by all of these social factors and the water that we're swimming in. This is a culture which really emphasizes those outcomes and rating and what that relationship to chess, quote unquote, should look like. But it's really useful in asking the question. It becomes useful because now you can become interested in the question. So I am very interested in this question, but less interested in the answer. And I certainly yeah. don't have an answer for this Twitter user that I've never met. How should you think about your relationship to chess? But you can start asking yourself that not rhetorically and really open up what you allow yourself to think about what the answer could be. And to circle back to something you were saying earlier, isn't the answer that you should feel ashamed? <laughs> Actually, yeah. Anyone who's playing chess for more than like 10 or 11 minutes a day, it's not a good look. Totally agreed. Speaking of the existentially depressed, Brayden asked, how do I improve my chess Aww. burnout when my life revolves around it? Brayden. Let's give a little context for our listeners. Can we share why? Yeah. So Brayden is Canadian. <laughs> uh, it's all right, Brayden. Just walk it off. What I really admire about Brayden is Brayden has had a very sort of transparent and very public relationship with chess. And it's posted a lot on Twitter and other websites about what that journey has looked like, has really wanted an NM title. And a lot of people have followed along and really resonated with that. Brayden is a friend of the pod. We love Brayden. And I just wanted to add as well that he worked really hard over COVID and was playing less mm. during that time. I might have the timeline wrong, but the way I understood it is he was probably always underrated or non-rated for his national federation, but then got to put so much work in without getting as many opportunities to play that his skill was, he was the person that everyone thinks they are, who's 300 points underrated or 500 points totally. underrated. He actually was. And so when he got to start playing more regularly and continue to put the work in, he was making a really big push really fast and getting rather close to his ratings goals, title goals, really fast. And it's very hard to keep that up when it's much harder to get points. People start to know who you are. You don't always get to play as much. When you start putting that pressure on yourself, it's easier for one loss to tilt into a bad weekend and then 
losing a couple points can turn into undoing a lot of points. I relate to that. So it seemed yeah. like he was on this trajectory of getting really close to these goals and now it feels much further away from them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So to answer Braden's question, kind of not rhetorically, and I'm sorry, Braden, that we were so slow in recording this. I feel like we could have saved you. Just kidding. I know that these are big challenges. There's no easy answer. As Hans Niemann says, some people don't want to be saved. Unbothered, unfazed, unplugged. Unplugged. Wait, (laughs) that was the most savage fucking shit I've ever seen in my life. Nepo for candidates 2024. That was unbelievable. That really did sort of shift my opinion a little bit in one direction or the other. But this idea of how do I reduce burnout if my life revolves around it? I mean, the first thing I would want to say is that probably feels really hard because it is really hard. Yes. It's essentially like saying, how do I keep my car from burning out if I don't put any oil in it? <laughs> like, I don't know. I mean, you, you got to refill the tank, I guess. If you feel like your whole life is revolving around this one thing and it carries so much weight and so much meaning for you... And that's creating burnout and fatigue. I don't know how to help with that without taking your foot off the gas. Uh, There's a way in which you're asking yourself to have this internal reaction to an environmental situation that feels stressful or that does feel exhausting. So you might have to make some meaningful changes in, in how your life revolves. Absolutely. I think the only thing I would add to that is sometimes having the setbacks or the things that some of the things that can contribute to the burnout of feeling like I'm putting all the work in, but I'm not making the gains I want to be making, or I've been working in this way and it's been going well for me for so long, but now I just don't have energy. Is there's a sense in which the bad thing has already happened and you don't have to be afraid of it anymore. Oh, I love that. JJ, that's so profound. That's like really beautiful, actually. There's really something to that. There's definitely something of, okay, you did everything you thought you were supposed to do and hit a patch of burnout. So now just don't do that. Have a little bit more fun with it. Give yourself some time of studying chess when you want to, instead of on the schedule, playing how you want to play instead of thinking about the results. And if you shed some more points, okay, it's not like you've already tapped out. Exactly. And you'll, you'll just get back into it when you want to. But I think there's something that can be really fun about that, of just mixing some shit up, playing a little bit different style, trying to play a little simpler. I love that. Um, my, at the time, worst loss rating wise of my <laughs> illustrious career felt very depressing, but also kind of liberating. And I won a very creative, entertaining B3 game as white like a B3, F4 sort of stonewall thing, not a structure I'm familiar with. There were multiple piece sacks going both ways. And it was just one of the most straight up fun games of chess I've ever played. And it felt like I could feel comfortable doing that because, you know, if I lose that game to an 1800 on top of my lost fucking 1500, I already have like, okay, maybe it's minus 50 instead of minus 30 or minus 20, but it's a gigantic negative number because of what's already happened. And stopping myself from just goofing around and having fun is not going to stop the bad thing from happening. So now we can just have fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's the first thing I thought of. Like that in and of itself might be a way to really take the pressure off. Yeah. And eventually you just look at how things are going. You look at what you're doing. You think about like, what was your goal? How are you approaching it? And sometimes it's as uncomplicated as, is that working? 
was working at the pace and thinking about just the way you were doing it sustainable? Did it get you yeah. where you wanted to be? And so you can react to that and say, no, so I don't want to do it at all anymore. And that might be coming out of what feels like, I don't know, even hopelessness. Like if this doesn't work, I don't know what could, but time will pass. You'll get some space and there might be a way to fit chess back in without that pressure and you might flourish. So I love that, JJ. That's really nice. And some of like the glib pieces of advice I've heard in other areas are like the best study plan is the one you can stick to, or like the best feature of any dissertation is that it's exists. Yeah. A good diss is a done diss. People exactly. do say that. Right. Uh, yeah. But, or to say, okay, you thought you had the perfect study plan and then you crashed, you shed some rating, you burnt out and miserable. So the good news is you now have to come up with a study plan that isn't so soul crushing because it turns out that if you're not able to keep up with that and get the results out of it, it's not a good study plan anymore. Maybe it was for months and months and for hundreds and hundreds of rating points, but now maybe your study plan is a lot more sporadic and fucking around. And if that's all you're up for, then that's a study plan. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also a very literal way in which that is exactly how burnout works. (laughs) The burnout forces you to take your foot off the gas and maybe even slam the brakes. So Mm -hmm. the burnout, it's trying to force you to rest. Would you say the burnout speaks for Mm -hmm. itself? Only if you're unbothered, unfazed, and unfettered. (laughs) Imagine imagine having fetters. Imagine having fets. (laughs) Like waking up and being like, yo, I'm so fetted. I cannot play today. The next two actually circle back to Max's question from earlier. And it's first is from, is it Zach with an H or Zach with a K? And the other is from Absonics. And Zach slash Zach asks, I have been struggling with time trouble in my games of any length. Usually if I have a small advantage, I invest a lot of time into securing or widening it. Also, I just really enjoy thinking about the position. Do you have any tips for how to get into a better mindset? And Absonics asks, when I blunder, my mental state goes in the toilet. I either feel panicked, hopeless, or ashamed of myself, as you should. Are there any strategies you have for either eliminating these feelings or lessening their duration or intensity? I do not know how to use my time due to crippling fear of being in time trouble. Is there a methodical approach I should be taking to calculation, falsification, and blunder checking on my turn? Are there any rules of thumb when deciding how long to go in the tank for? Addendum, normally I gut check the position and get married to the first plan that passes the sniff test. (laughs) So these are just two questions. One is on the, I always get into time trouble side of things, whether it's because I want to make sure I'm doing things the right way, or I just enjoy getting sucked into it. And the other is, I'm so afraid of time trouble and whatnot, that I'm worried that I'm going to be taking too long or doing too many things. And then I end up wondering, and then I can't pull my mental state out of the toilet for the game. So kind of two sides of the same coin. So the thing that I thought you were going to hop on first is uh, I either feel panicked, hopeless, or ashamed of myself. Are there any strategies you have for eliminating these feelings or lessening their duration and <laughs> intensity? Julia, what do you have to say about that? Actually, my first reaction was like, man, some of these questions use the word shame. There's really something there. Someone should really do some kind of empirical study. Shame and should. Shame. shame and should. <laughs> Those are the big, the, the big two. Yeah, like, what should I do? Because I feel so ashamed of myself. <laughs> Whatever it is. I'm going to play the Shvesnikov. Yeah, we've solved everyone's problems. 
I love that you knew that that's the thing that I would react to. In his questions, he's essentially saying, I feel panic, hopeless, ashamed of myself. What are the strategies to eliminate these feelings, get rid of their duration, their intensity? I like the fact that in the question, he's giving some options. He sort of says, how do I get rid of this? But then acknowledges, maybe I can't. How do I at least turn down the volume? And I think that's really fair. I think that already in the question, he's getting at something that I probably would have pointed out if he had just said, how do I eradicate this? Which is that can be really, really hard to do. I love to do this sort of thought experiment, even with my patients who come in saying something similar. Like I have this terrible emotional experience in this context. How do I get myself to stop feeling this way? And so I'll kind of demonstrate for them. I don't know, maybe our listeners will find it useful how hard it can be to flip that light switch of our affect or emotion. So I might say something like, okay, let's sit and face each other right now. And I want you to feel really angry at me. Come on, get mad. And they're kind of smiling like, well, I don't know how to do that. And I'm like, no, seriously, do it. Try. Think of something. Imagine I did something. And they just realize it's really, really hard. So I'm glad that they sort of gave some options and sort of recognize how hard that can be. And even though it's not this light switch that we can turn on and off, I do think there is something to be said about strategies to sort of turn down the volume, that piece about the intensity. Yeah. I I thought you were going to say exactly what you said at first, which was if the only question was just, how do I stop feeling these things? You were going to say that actually there's a reason we have the feelings we have. Some of these feelings can be useful. They can be responsive for the situation and learning how to notice them, harness them, reduce the intensity is the skills that I bring to my clients in therapy. And then I was going to jump in and say something like the thing I hate about a lot of self-help that masquerades as therapy, both outside of and in the chest space is that it views feelings as or psychology itself as the problem to be eradicated. Right. Yeah. And we've talked about that even on this pod quite a bit. And so I think that you were very astute to point out that Opsonics was very astute to say, if not eliminating <laughs> yeah. these feelings, how do I lessen their duration or intensity? Because it's true that even if these feelings are useful, if I'm trying to play a game of chess and I'm incapable of thinking or moving or doing anything because of the duration and intensity of these feelings, they are still something that is getting in the way of what I'd like to be doing. So that sounds like a much more useful question than how do I get rid of them? Where the point is, no, actually, the fact that certain positions can spark fear or panic in you while others don't is itself something that we like to call, there's this thing in chess called intuition. And if certain positions are evoking certain emotional responses, that in itself can actually be good. And I imagine it would be really hard to play a game of chess with no sorts of intuitive emotional cues of when things feel a little tricky, feel like they're getting away from you, feel like they might be close to something. If you get rid of all of that altogether, I think that you are going to have a much harder time evaluating the position and acting appropriately. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with everything you just said. I feel like I'm going to add something into the pot, which is actually quite annoying, (laughs) but um, it's true. I think the vast majority of emotional experiences are extraordinarily useful, exactly the way that you described, JJ, which is it gives us information. It either gives us information so that we can kind of figure out what we need or what is important to attend to. It gives other people around us information when we express those emotions. Uniquely, I think of things like panic, hopelessness, and shame as being unuseful. It's a very small number of emotions. 
Because you're totally right. The scenario that you just described, if it is a stress response, if it is anxiety, it might be indicating that there's a threat. We don't want to take that at face value, like a conclusion about reality, but it might be a useful hypothesis. Like, oh, I feel stressed in this position. I better look both ways. I better blunder check. I better look for tactics. I better think positionally, whatever it might be. Oh, one thing just to add to that checklist is I can pause and say, am I responding to something that's there or a ghost? Am I responding to something that just feels stressful? Or am I responding to, I see this variation, I'm in trouble at the end of it, and I don't see a clear way out of it. That's very different than this feels bad, man. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's what the check is designed to do. Literally, Mm -hmm. check. Is it a real threat or is it a ghost? Love that. The issue is that when that feeling, when that stress response turns into something like panic, now we're talking about the intensity of an emotion where it actually might start to become useful because it might make someone feel so dysregulated that they're not actually able to really effectively tap into their cognitive resources and do that type of check or to think intellectually instead of to be reacting emotionally. There are these moments where we experience these things where it can be very useful before we try to move into any kind of intellectual endeavor or cognitive processing, decision-making, calculating, planning to do the regulation first. And we've talked about that. So here I'm saying like, what is a strategy to regulate when that feeling feels like panic. And we do this a lot in therapy. I don't want to waste a ton of time kind of going into the detail about that on the podcast, but there are countless numbers of strategies that directly address something like emotional or sensory regulation. But here's the way the emotion can become useful. Again, it sounds like once it becomes that extreme, you can't ignore it and maybe you can redirect. So If you are able to play with this and practice this and find some skills and some strategies that actually do help you re-regulate, when you feel that emotion, it's very useful that you have sort of that interoceptive awareness. You notice it showing up and then that information can direct you to start to use the skills. It's almost kind of nice that it's loud enough for you. So there's a way in which you can still sort of optimize this and try to harness it in direction you want to go. When you get that feeling, reach for the right strategy. And it, it might take a while to figure out what that is. You know, I, I can't really prescribe that over a podcast with such limited information, but DBT emotional regulation, it's magical. And to add to that, one of the reasons why we study and try to practice those strategies outside of stressful game settings is when you've really built up the skill, it's easier to access it at this point where there's this really loud voice in your head and this need to redirect and there's an emotional exhaustion. It's really hard if that's the only time you're ever practicing the skills you're trying to incorporate in there. It's really hard to do that there. And the more automatic it feels like, oh, oh okay. Oh, sorry. I just got, I know what I want to say. Oh, no, great. I just feel like we've kind of missed the question because he was actually okay. very specific. So I, I just got totally lost. Okay. But he is specifically saying, when I blunder, my mental state goes in the toilet. It's once I make a mistake. I I also hear that he's not saying I just sort of arbitrarily when I'm uncertain. Mm -hmm. That's the second paragraph. Okay, that's true. That's true. Okay. But then to address the very first thing, he's specifically saying this happens when I blunder. There's also a bit of specificity about like when this type of arousal or dysregulation happens. And then Mm -hmm. there's also a lot of strategies to help with that reaction. Do you know what do you know what I'm gonna suggest, JJ? Do you know what the number one thing is to sort of help maybe ameliorate that sort of anxiety panic response to a blunder or a perceived mistake? Some sort of reset, five senses, noticing. Right. So that would be like that would be like grounding, that would be regulation. But actually for this specific example, if it's no, actually, (laughs) all of a sudden I am a parole officer. If it's when you blunder, 
what I might really recommend, this is kind of going out on a limb, but take it if it works. I, I really do think what would be recommended here is exposure. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. Can you practice this? As you get these skills and you build them up, can you literally go online and play games that don't have a lot of meaning? You can start small, make a mistake on purpose, like really practice how it feels or, or, or play games very seriously and try your hardest. And when you blunder over and over again, practice bringing your stress response down before you try to keep playing, before you act impulsively, before you log off of chess.com, practice this skill in vivo. The exposure itself can really, really help. The goal of exposure is to actually blunt that reflexive panic. And over time, as you experience it, as you experience the blunder and your anxiety goes up, but it also comes back down really efficiently the response over time does dissipate. That's so funny that you said that because that um, exposure was actually going to be my response to the second part of the question, which was, I don't know how to use my time due to crippling fear of being in time trouble. So I'm reading this as not the I'm always in time trouble help, but the reacting and planning and playing and what I'm guessing is a suboptimal way out of a fear of being in time trouble. And yeah. there, my recommendation there is when you're playing those online games, training games, really more than for any particular skill, just like let yourself get into more time trouble than you're comfortable with. Practice it. I love that. Not because not because the solution's ever going to be you get so good in time trouble that you don't have problems anymore. That's blatantly false. But I think you might find that if you're regularly finishing 90 plus 30 games with 30 minutes on your clock, you might find that the time pressure of having 10 minutes on your clock or five minutes on your clock with that 30 second increment doesn't really feel like a 5-0 game. And it's not as bad as you think, or that the difference between having 30 minutes remaining and having five minutes remaining is actually a pretty wide gap. And that when you kind of let yourself use that little bit of time, you might find two things. First, oh, it really is just an extra 20 seconds here or there, and it's not putting me in immediate time pressure like I was afraid it was. And second, when I'm making slightly more accurate moves or fewer straight-up mistakes, my opponent is taking longer. When I'm, make, when I'm giving them fewer easy moves to make, they play slower and I get to think more on their time, which is my response to Zach or Zach's question. If you have a small advantage, rather than investing your time into securing or widening it, Can you find simple enough moves that don't have obvious, forcing, clear, straightforward plans for your opponent that keep your advantage? So circling back to the Opsonics question, that when you let yourself take that extra time and expose yourself to the possibility of being in time trouble, you'll find A, it doesn't always take as long as you think it will, and B, it can lead to them taking longer too. And you don't have to worry about it as much, but you really might just realize that on all of those things, even if being in time pressure sucks, the more you've done it, maybe you still get some swindles. Maybe, you know, you can be a little bit less afraid of it if you just let it happen when it happens. Okay, let's do, let's do rapid fire, JJ. I literally only have one more that I want to do. Okay, I have one more too. So let's see if it's the same one. At Unseen Chess Pod says, what if life really is meaningless? What if nothing matters? Everything is lies. The world is not, but corrupt self-interest and the best we can hope for are a few fleeting moments of relief from this misery before the void brings merciful relief. Also, is one E4 better than one D4? (laughs) Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is, but only because it avoids the Benoni. 
<laughs> okay, that's it. Oh, that was perfect. As always, thank you for letting us take you into this deep, dark forest where 2 plus 2 equals 5 and the path leading out is only wide enough for listeners like you. Since we are the only podcast bold enough to call itself the official podcast of FIDE's non-existent committee on mental health, we would be truly touched if you subscribe, leave us a glowing review, and tell all your friends about us. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ChessFeelsPod.